You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. The seventh lecture in our course on logic for the International Catholic University is entitled The Third Part of Logic and the Syllogism. Now in our last lecture we completed our discussion of the second part of logic, which was about the statement. We saw that there were four kinds of statements, the universal affirmation and denial and the particular affirmation and denial. And we talked about the two basic kinds of oppositions between statements, contrary statements and contradictory statements. We're ready then to move on to the third part of logic, the part of logic which deals with the third operation of the intellect. In the third operation, we don't simply understand what something is. We don't simply make true and false statements. Rather, we perform the operation of discursive reasoning reasoning from one truth to another. Now, St. Thomas, in his prologue to Aristotle's Posterior Analytics, which, as we said before, is really an introduction to the whole of logic, goes over in detail the subdivisions of the third part of logic. And that's what I'd like to do right now, to explain his divisions. In order to explain his divisions, St. Thomas makes a comparison between discursive reasoning and the processes of nature. He makes this comparison because in both cases we're talking about a process, a kind of change from one state to another. In reasoning, we go from one truth to another. In nature, things go from one state to another. The kinds of processes in nature, then, can illuminate the kinds of rational processes. Now, St. Thomas identifies three basic processes in the natural world. He writes, In certain things, nature acts by necessity, that is, in such a way that she cannot fail. In other things, she works more often than not, though sometimes she falls short of her goal. There must be two kinds of actions in the latter case, one which happens for the most part, as when a complete animal is born from the seed. The other is when nature falls short of what is fitting, as when some monstrosity is born from the seed because of the corruption of some principle of generation. Now what St. Thomas is saying is that in the events of nature, things either happen by necessity or usually in the same way. Now, when we're talking about events that usually happen in the same way, there are two possible outcomes. The thing that usually happens, or the rare exception to that. An example of something that happens by necessity is the sun rising. There doesn't seem to be any natural cause which is capable of stopping the sun from rising, or as we now would say, the earth from spinning on its axis. Most natural processes, however, do not have that kind of necessity. The example of St. Thomas uses is the generation of a complete animal. Now, he assumes, of course, the events in nature happen for a purpose and that they usually achieve that purpose and that the purpose is some good state. 
So when nature fails to achieve its purpose, it's a bad thing. In the generation of an animal, usually the process results in a complete animal, a dog which has all of its limbs and internal organs, for example. But sometimes because of a genetic defect, a defect in what he calls the principle of generation, what results is not a complete animal, but a monstrosity. For example, a dog missing a limb or an internal organ. This happens sometimes, but rarely. And when it does happen, it's a bad thing. So, we have three processes in nature. One which happens by necessity, one which usually happens, and then the exceptions to what usually happens. Now, St. Thomas compares this to rational processes. He writes, One process of reason produces necessity, so that there's no possibility of falling short of the truth. We achieve the certainty of science in those processes. There is another process of reason which concludes to the truth for the most part, but not with necessity. The third process of reason is that in which reason falls short of the truth because of a failure to follow some principle in reasoning. Now, what St. Thomas is saying here is that like in nature, so also in reasoning, there are processes which absolutely cannot fail. This is like the process of the sun rising. Now, there's also a second process in which reason achieves the truth for the most part, but is capable of failing, and that's like the natural process in which a complete animal is generated. Finally, there's a third process in which Reason fails to find the truth because it doesn't follow the correct rules, the true principles of reasoning. This is like the uh, generation of some monstrosity. Now, since there are three processes in discursive reasoning, there's going to be three parts to the third part of logic. The first part of the third part governs the first process the process of reasoning that never fails, that achieves certainty. This part of logic is called the judging part, since we make a judgment when we're certain about something. The jury judges the defendant guilty when they no longer have a reasonable doubt. Now the second part of the third part governs the second process, that which succeeds for the most part so that it achieves a kind of probability. Now, this part is called the discovering part of logic. The reason is that while we judge when we are certain, what we have discovered we're not completely certain about. We're merely probably right about what we discover. Now, let me give an example to clarify this last distinction. In his Summa Theologica, St. Thomas gives five proofs for the existence of God. Now, if we analyze these proofs logically, we find that they yield a certain conclusion and are formulated according to the rules of the judging part of logic. Now, before St. Thomas formulated these proofs, some of which he has received from previous philosophers, Thinkers had been trying for centuries to discover whether God existed. The process by which someone discovers the truth about the existence of God 
is a different process than the one used to prove that he exists. These earlier philosophers then were guided by the second part of the third part of logic in their search for the existence of God. For example, if we look to Plato, he gives us some very good reasons for believing God exists, but his arguments are not entirely indisputable. They yield a conclusion which is only probable. Plato is guided in his arguments by the discovering part of logic, St. Thomas by the judging part. Now there's a temptation to think that since the judging part of logic gives a certain conclusion while the discovering part only gives us probability, then we should only use the judging part and leave the discovering part aside. Now there's two ways to answer such an objection. First, we can note this. Discovery always comes before judgment. If I have not discovered some truth, I cannot judge whether it is true. If Plato had not tried to discover the existence of God and given good but not foolproof arguments for it, then someone like St. Thomas would have had a much more difficult time giving a complete proof of God's existence. Now, the second way to answer that objection is to note that an absolute proof is actually much harder to understand than what's simply a good argument. And not only that, but the good argument prepares our minds for understanding the absolute proof. Now, few men are really able to understand St. Thomas's proofs for the existence of God. It's much easier to understand Plato's good arguments. And furthermore, having understood Plato's good arguments is the best preparation for understanding St. Thomas's proofs. If we neglect the discovering part of logic, we will often not be able to understand the proofs in the judging part of logic. Now those are the first two parts of the third part of logic. Yeah, I understand it's getting kind of complicated. Let's talk about the third part. There's a third part which deals with failure in the process of reasoning, which results from not following the rules of good reasoning. And St. Thomas calls this part of logic the sophistic part. Of course, the point of this part of logic is not to make us reason badly, but to enable us to avoid reasoning badly and to identify bad reasoning in others. Aristotle discusses this in the book called On Sophistic Refutations. We will cover this part of logic much later in our course. So we can sum up. There are three grades of reasoning and three parts of logic which guide us in each of them. The first process achieves certainty and it's guided by the judging part of logic. The second process achieves probability and is guided by the discovering part of logic. The third is the failure to achieve the truth and we avoid this through our study of the sophistic part of logic. Now today's lecture is going to begin our discussion of the judging part of logic. But before we take this up in detail, I'd like to follow the rest of St. Thomas's prologue and make some further distinctions about reasoning processes and parts of logic. More specifically, we're going to divide 
the discovering part of logic into three parts. St. Thomas writes, The certainty of judgment that we possess through resolving comes either from the form of the syllogism alone and the book Prior Analytics, which is about the syllogism considered simply as ordered to this, or also from the matter when essential and necessary propositions are taken. And the book Posterior Analytics, which is about the demonstrative syllogism, is ordered to this. What is clear from what St. Thomas says is that the process of reasoning that achieves, in this case, the truth by necessity is called a syllogism. Now, what exactly a syllogism is, we're going to discuss towards the end of this lecture. Still, we can see that he makes a distinction between the necessity which comes from the form of reasoning, the syllogism itself, and a necessity in reasoning that comes from the matter of the syllogism. And so there are two books in Aristotle's Organon which deal with this kind of absolutely certain necessary process of reasoning. There's the first, which is called the prior analytics, which deals with the necessity of reasoning that comes from the form of reasoning, from the syllogism itself, which achieves its conclusion by necessity. But it leaves aside what the reasoning is about. The second book is the posterior analytics, in which we talk about the necessity of reasoning that doesn't come just from the form of the syllogism alone, but also from the matter of the syllogism, and which gives us an absolutely necessarily certain conclusion. Those are the two books in Aristotle's Organon which deal with the judging part of logic, but there are, also, there are three books in Aristotle's Organon which deal with the discovering part of logic. Now, St. Thomas goes through this process to divide the discovering part of logic into three parts. The parts correspond to three of Aristotle's books, the topics, the rhetoric, and the poetics. And St. Thomas, in order to illuminate this, once again makes a comparison to three natural processes. This is what he writes. Just as we notice a kind of gradation in natural things which act for the most part, since the stronger the natural power, the less often it fails to produce its effect, so also we find some gradation in the process of reason, which is not entirely certain. The process of reason has that gradation insofar as it approaches more or less to perfect certitude. So, there's a gradation in reasoning similar to a gradation in natural things. Sometimes, reasoning which achieves the truth for the most part results in a very solid opinion. Let's take an example of that. A statesman, after a long process of deliberation, may decide that it's necessary to wage war on a neighboring country. His careful thought has yielded a solid opinion about the matter. Now, a solid, well-reasoned opinion may be wrong, but most of the time it's right. Aristotle discusses this kind of reasoning in his book, The Topics, and this type of reasoning is called dialectic. We'll discuss dialectic in one of our later lectures. There's another process of reasoning called rhetoric, which does not produce a solid opinion, 
but a strong suspicion that one side of an issue is right. For example, after the statesman has decided that the war is necessary, he wants to persuade the public to support him in the war. Of course, he cannot go through the entire process of deliberation that he went through privately, publicly. He cannot deliberate publicly as he does privately. So, the speech which he uses to persuade the public that his opinion is right gives us a process of thinking which is less certain than his own process of thought. So the public, even if they follow what he says correctly, will have less solid reasons for thinking that the war is necessary than he does. Yet if he gives a good speech, the public will rightly have a strong suspicion that he's right and will support him in the war. Aristotle discusses the kind of reasoning which produces a strong suspicion in his book, The Rhetoric. Now, finally, we can have a tendency to fall on one side of a controversy, not because we've been given arguments exactly, but because one man has used his reason to construct a convincing image, a convincing representation which either attracts or repels us. A very good example of this is Shakespeare's play Macbeth, which portrays ambition so vividly and so horribly that the play tends to make us think that ambition is bad. We take up one side of the issue of whether ambition is good or bad because of what we've seen in the play. Of course, this tendency, which comes from a story, is not even as certain as rhetorical persuasion. Still, when it is done properly, it seems to give some guidance to our opinions. And so Aristotle discusses this process of reasoning used by the writer to make this representation, this image, in his book called The Poetics. Thus, the discovering part of logic has three parts and three books. The first, which produces solid opinion, Aristotle discusses in his book called The Topics, and he calls that process of reasoning dialectic. The second, which is less certain and produces only a strong suspicion, is called rhetoric and is covered in Aristotle's book of the same name. The third, which is the least certain, and which produces only a tendency to think in a certain way, is covered in his book called The Poetics. These are the three parts of the discovering part of logic. Now, the sophistic part of logic has only one part to it. There's no need to make further divisions there. The whole sophistic part of logic is covered in Aristotle's book on sophistic refutations. So now that we've given this complete outline, this complete overview of the rest of logic, which is also an overview of the rest of this course, I'd like to enter into the details of the third part of logic. First, we're going to look at the primary instrument, the primary tool of the third part of logic, the syllogism. That's talked about in Aristotle's prior analytics. At the beginning of the prior analytics, Aristotle defines the syllogism and the parts of the syllogism, the proposition and the term. So we're going to finish our lecture 
with the discussion of those definitions. Now, Aristotle first defines the proposition. He writes, a proposition is a sentence affirming or denying one thing of another. This is either universal, particular, or indefinite. Now, we can see that Aristotle is defining the proposition so such a way so that it's clear that the proposition is a statement because statements are what affirm and deny. And the statements that were important and that are important for the syllogism are the ones we've studied before, the universal affirmation and denial, the particular affirmation and denial. For example, the statement, all triangles are three-sided, is also, as we're going to see, a proposition. Now, he doesn't explain here exactly how the proposition differs from the ordinary statement. Instead, he goes on to define the next part of the syllogism, the term. He writes, I call that a term into which the propositions are resolved. That is the predicate and that of which it is predicated. Being, being added, and not being, being removed. Now, first, what we should note about this definition is that Aristotle is saying terms are parts of propositions. More specifically, the subject and the predicate of the proposition. What is not a part of a term is the being verb. The verbs is or is not, are or are not, was or will be. They are not terms in the syllogism. So, to give an example of a proposition, we could say, all triangles are three-sided. Now, in that proposition, triangle is a term, three-sided is a term, but the being verb are is not a term. Are merely serves to connect the subject and predicate. Also, the word all or every is not a term. All or every simply tell us that the subject of the proposition is taken universally. We can look at it this way. When we use the being verb to join together terms, we get propositions. And when we put propositions together, we're going to get syllogisms. And so our next task is to look at Aristotle's definition of the syllogism and look at an example of a syllogism. Now, Aristotle gives this definition of a syllogism. A syllogism is speech in which certain things being stated, something other than what is stated follows of necessity from their being so. Let's take that definition part by part. First, the syllogism is speech, like the statement. It's a tool of reasoning made of words. But this is a tool we use to do discursive reasoning. Just as the statement was more complex from the simple expressions, which Aristotle covered in the book Categories, so the syllogism is more complex than the statement because it's made of more than one statement. Maybe we could say this then about the difference between a statement and a proposition. A statement is simply a complex expression which is true or false, 
whereas a proposition not only is a complex expression that's true or false, but is by definition part of a syllogism. Now, if we go back to Aristotle's definition, he says a syllogism is speech in which certain things are stated. The certain things which are stated are the propositions, or another way to put it, the premises of the syllogism. And then Aristotle says, something other than what is stated follows of necessity. That something other which follows is called the conclusion of the syllogism. Now, both the propositions, the premises, and the conclusion are statements. They are not simple expressions. Let's look at a chart, chart number four, and go over an example of a syllogism and identify its parts. The top syllogism is every three-sided figure has angles equal to 180 degrees. That is the first premise. The second premise is every triangle is a three-sided figure. Now, from those two premises or propositions being stated, something else follows the conclusion. Every triangle has angles equal to 180 degrees. Finally, Aristotle writes that the conclusion of the syllogism follows of necessity from the fact that these things are so. In our example, it's clear that from the fact of every three-sided figure having angles equal to 180 degrees, and from the fact that every triangle has three sides, it follows necessarily the conclusion. Every triangle has angles equal to 180 degrees. Furthermore, Aristotle explains what he means when he says it follows from their being so in this way. You do not have to add any more terms in order to get the conclusion to follow necessarily. I just need, in this case, three terms in order to see that the conclusion follows necessarily. I just need the three terms, triangle, three-sided figure, and having angles equal to 180 degrees. So the conclusion follows simply because of these three terms and no more. In this lecture, we've had an overview of the third part of logic, and we've defined the syllogism and its parts. In our next lecture, we're going to discuss the principles of the syllogism and the most useful forms of the syllogism. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.